It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you grow your e-commerce business faster and more efficiently by cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and guidance from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello, Master Plan World. It's great to have you all listening. And I'm really pleased to be bringing you yet another Takeaways episode. This one is probably the last one of the year. For those of you who don't know what the Takeaways episodes are, let me quickly explain. So I attend a lot of conferences and in some ways I attend them on your behalf, I guess. Although you'll never get as much from my Takeaways episodes as you get from the whole conference because usually I'm drilling at least one, if not multiple days down into just half an hour. But I figure if I'm there, I ought to be taking all that I'm learning and sending it on to you guys. So that's what they are. They are the key takeaways, in my eyes, from the conferences that I go to. Last week, I attended the last DCA event of the year. That's the Direct Commerce Association, an awesome group of e-commerce, mail order and multi-channel businesses. And I have an update from that for you on using psychology and customer profiles to improve your sales, video marketing, email design, and of course, some direct mail advice. Um, Given the DCA comes out of the mail order industry, that's where it originated, then it wouldn't be a DCA conference if there weren't a few people banging the drum for direct mail. Before we dive into all that, I should let you know that you can get my whole script for this show. Think of it as a really long blog post at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash 127-5. That includes all my typos, um, plenty of links and a couple of pictures of it all. Okay, so let's get started. Using psychology and customer profiling to improve your sales. Okay, these are updates from two different sessions at the conference, both of which focused on getting a better understanding of your customer in order to improve marketing and increase sales. They both came at it from some very different angles. I'm going to start off with a marvellous Matt Curry of Love Honey, who explained how they're getting on with customer profiling and segmentation. Then it's the key parts of a presentation by Tim Gray from Digivate, who explained how psychology can be used to improve CRO and UX. So CRO is conversion rate optimization and UX is user experience. Let's start off with what Matt had to say. So that was Matt Curry from Love Honey. For those of you not familiar with Love Honey, they sell sex toys. Too many S's there for me. So they sell sex toys, which poses all kinds of challenges, especially in understanding why customers choose to buy from them and helping the customer along their sex toy educational journey. It's not the sort of thing the average person discusses in general anywhere. Um, Matt, if you're listening, apologies for explaining that not quite as well as you did. (laughs) I'm trying to keep it relatively straightforward. Um, and not get into too many of those marvellous examples you showed us. Now, working out why customers choose to buy from you is a problem that pretty much every e-commerce business has. Every business has, in fact, because understanding why the customer chooses to buy what they choose to buy or to visit your site in the first place is really critical to making sure that you're delivering them what they want and therefore getting the sale. This problem is heightened in the sex toy marketplace because people just don't talk about it. If you know why your customer is choosing to buy, you can, of course, help them along the journey to purchase. And that's really the fundamental point of Matt's session. He took us through how Love Honey had been working to better understand their customers in order to structure their marketing landing pages and purchase journeys to fit the customer's individual needs. 
I really like the approach they've taken as it's so simple and down to earth and easy to understand. So I'm going to run you through this process in the hope it inspires some of you to do this in your business. So the first step was they interviewed 10 customers, just 10, but proper interviews about how they go about buying sex toys. So why they buy, how they buy, the process they went through as they worked out what they were going to buy. Second step, they analysed the results of those interviews to work out what made these customers different. What were the key customer types they were seeing? This led to them creating a customer quadrant. So a quadrant is um, essentially a box split in four that has two axes running through the middle. So the middle horizontally and the middle vertically. And those two axes represent different different ends of the same spectrum, I suppose. And this then gives them four customer types in those four boxes. There's an image of this on the the show notes if you want to see it, which would be a lot easier than me trying to explain it um, in words. Now, the key axes that they represented, and the, really the critical thing is here is working out what goes on the axes. So the key things the Love Honey team identified was, are the customers making the decision alone or with their partner? So they solo buyers or um, joint or partner buyers. And then secondly, do they want to make their sex life more fun or are they looking to solve a problem? So they identified that there was customers who bought alone, customers who bought with their partner. And then there were customers who were buying for more fun or were buying to deal with a problem that they had. Very, very simple, isn't it? Really, really simple. I think we can all see how that works. Can you find that in your business? What are the key axes that differentiate your customers from each other because that's really all customer segmentation is it's about finding the key groups of customers that gave love honey four customer types so then they went on to revisit those interviews to build a purchase or experience journey or map depending on which word you want to use for each of those customer types in order to work out how they can best help the customer progress through that journey so um Matt showed us some some pictures of crazy walls full of post-it notes where they where they worked on mapping this journey out. You know, when they had the conversation, what they're discussing at different times, how they're using to research at each time, when they're coming to the website, what they're looking at on the website. Once you've worked out what that journey is, they then went into step four, which was to pick one of those segments, one of those customer groups they identified, and then to start testing alternative. Uh, implementations of the homepage. So in term, alternative designs, in term, alternative layouts, in alternative call to actions, places that the homepage led to for that particular segment based on what their journey was like. And doing the same thing to other landing pages, then A-B split testing those new versions. And then building that through the rest of the journey through the website. And they were doing this with the biggest segment, the segment that was worth the most to them. So that's a, a, a really simple four-step process to starting to understand at a really simple level, but highly effective level, how your customers are choosing to buy, buy from you, why they're buying from you, and then to tweak your website to make that a reality. Or not to make that a reality, but rather to, to put in place things which will accelerate their path along that journey and help them along that journey, thus making it considerably more likely they're going to buy from you. Once you understand your customers, you can start using psychological twists to encourage the purchase. And this was the focus of Tim Gray's session, where he outlined ideas of how to deploy the different psychological twists 
that are available to us. These are heavy, he was heavily referencing um, Chialdini's book Influence, which if you haven't read it, you should. Plus, he went through a few other psychological twists that aren't in Influence, but I'll, I'll take you through the key bits from those shortly. Where he started, though, was rather like the growth hacking tip uh, to use five-second testing that I covered in our last Takeaways episode, uh, 126-5, if anyone wants to go and um, have a listen to that one. And that was about using five-second tests to get your pages to give out exactly the right message. Now, Tim, at the DCA event, was advocating getting to the bottom of, the, of what the role of each page on your website is and making sure that it fulfills the role. He suggested that there are three questions that each page must answer for the customer and that those are, where am I? What can I do here? Why should I do it? And I thought that was such a cool way of thinking about looking at your homepage or any other page on your website. If you're creating a landing page or something, does it make it clear to the customer where they are, what they can do there and why they should do it? Some good examples he shared with us, which you can check out, are the Airbnb homepage, Abel and Cole homepage, and the Amazon homepage. So some very different ones there, all beginning with the letter A, interestingly. Um, anyway, some ones for you to check out. All right, let's get into those psychological twists, those psychological nudges he was talking about, and I'm going to give you a couple of bits of advice on each of them. So first off, he mentioned reciprocity. I uh, always try, have trouble saying that, but that's basically that if we as humans are given something, we feel indebted to the giver. So a free gift offer is a great thing because even though they haven't got the freebie, it still has a bit of that reciprocity impact. Social proof. I talk a lot about social proof. So social proof exists to save us energy because we can go, right, someone else has already evaluated that. They found it to be good. Brilliant. I don't have to evaluate it. I can just buy it. So you should be sharing those testimonials, how many customers have bought this, all those kind of things. Or tell them what the average person buys from you. So what's the best seller? Next up was scarcity, which is all about um, pointing out that there's limited, limited availability of something. So limited edition products, last few in stock, that's all a good way to get someone to buy. Commitment and consistency. So this is where you get someone to do something once, they're more likely to do it again. This is a complex one to really explain. And so I suggest if you really want to get to grips with the commitment and consistency piece, you read the examples in Chialdini's book. But essentially what it means in practical terms is that if you offer a free trial, someone is more likely to sign up for the paid version later because they've made that little commitment. So they're likely to make a bigger commitment later on. It's their, their way of become a consistent purchaser from you. Um, authority. This is about taking authority from your other customers. So which companies or individuals use you? Um, which newspapers have written about you? Making that clear to the customers, you get a bit of the authority of that that the person has in that other person transferring over to you. Liking. Now, this is about the fact that people buy from people they like. So you need to put content out there that enables the customer to feel a, a synergy with you, to feel like they like you. That means a good About Us page. And Tim suggested Sofa Sofa as a fantastic example of this. Now, psychological friction was the last one he talked about. And this is kind of like the, it's the negative one. Psychological friction is the biggest threat to getting a sale because it slows users down. This is where they're like, 
oh, I've got uncertainty. Oh, I'm not sure that contradicts something else. So you have to, little by little, step by step, in reduce psychological friction on your site. So, for example, putting all your checkout questions on one page, the whole form on one page is something which Tim says is less likely to work because it's like, oh, my God, I've got so much to do. If you ask just a few questions on each page, you should see a conversion improvement. Lose that voucher code box. Just have a have a little subtle link to have you got a voucher code. Don't put the box there because the box leads people going, oh, should I have a voucher? Where's my voucher? And then you, you'll lose them. Make the path as easy to follow as possible. That will be re- be you removing those pieces of psychological friction. Um, and Tim also said that copy, do not underestimate the power of copy. Copy is hugely important and it has a big impact on helping people through the process. In general, you need to be specific and give facts rather than be um, be generic or um, or vague. So, for example, think uh, we will get back to you within one hour, not we will get back to you soon. Think customer service team, not sales advisor. Which one are you more likely to respond to? Um, We'll pay for your shipping, not free delivery. We don't have a call centre, so we can offer you even better prices, not just no phone number only on the website. Explain why you've not put the phone number in there. Explain that it's in their benefit. Um, And uh, a last example before we move on to video marketing Tim showed us a banner that was advertising a free consultation, which saw 117% more inquiries completed when the text on that banner was changed from free consultation to work with us. Kind of counterintuitive, then you think about it and it becomes obvious, then you think about it again, it becomes counterintuitive. You just have to test these things and copy is all powerful. Right then, video marketing. I took two key lessons from Matt Whelan's session from The Specialist Works. First up, Matt splits his video marketing ideas into three types along a continuum from earned to paid. So at the earned end of the line, we have discoverable content. This is the content you're not going to pay people to get to, but it's things which you're hoping they're going to find in Google search, in YouTube search, social media, basically anywhere you put your video without paying for it where you're hoping someone's going to discover it. At the paid end, we have broadcast content. Think TV ads. Huge audiences where you're paying um, fees to get in front of that huge audience. And in the middle, we have promoted content. These are the videos that you spend your pay-per-click pounds on. So Facebook, YouTube and so forth. I thought this was a really interesting way to think about video marketing because the content and messages and format of your video would be very different depending on which one you're creating it for. And successful videos, of course, are those where the customer wants to watch them and that tell a compelling story. So what's the compelling story that should be in your discoverable content? What's the compelling story that it's worth putting into broadcast media? And what's the compelling piece you want to put your pay-per-click pounds behind? Again, the second thing in the world of video marketing were a couple of was was one key piece of advice for Facebook. This deserves reiterating again and again and again and counts not just for video advertising. So on Facebook, if you're running any Facebook ads, you must make sure you choose the right objective. When it comes to videos, you have three choices. You can choose to pay 
for the objective of a click. You can choose your objective to be that you want someone to watch it for two seconds. You can pay that the objective is that you want someone to watch it for 10 seconds. It makes a massive difference to performance. So work out which of those is the key thing for you and then set up your Facebook advertising accordingly. Okay, email design. This was a really good session. This was Jalna Soulange of Cheetah Digital. And it was a brilliant session on how to make your emails great. Now, a lot of what she covered would be something you hopefully already do anyway. A lot of it's a refresher. But there are a few new nuggets in there too. Plus, it's always good to be reminded that actually, oh, I'm not out of date. This is still the right way to be doing email marketing. Jana claimed that if we did everything she went through, you could see your CTOR, your click to open ratio, that's the percentage of people who opened your email that clicked through to your website, increase by 155%. So yes, we're predominantly looking at what's in that email once someone's opened it here. So what I've done is I picked out a few, well actually quite a lot, of the uh, the items she shared and because these are the key ones which I think it's worth either reiterating or that you could definitely include in your activity. So here we go. Starting with subject lines. If you think emojis might resonate with your audience, give it a test because there's some great results coming in this space. Then the pre-header. This is the part of the email someone can see before they click on it. So think about um, you know Gmail where you can see the subject line in a few words of text. Advice for what you put into that pre-header area. Don't repeat the subject line. Put something else in there. Do use it to grab attention so products and offers are a great idea. Next up, the header area. So make sure your logo is instantly recognisable. This shouldn't, I would hope this doesn't really need saying, but I have seen a few businesses where they seem to change their logo every time an email comes out. Do not be that company. Have a consistent big logo in the header of your email so people know it's from you and they recognize it and if you have a navigation bar in the email it should be the same look and feel as the one on your website but probably smaller probably few item fewer items on there because it emails are so much thinner okay now for some overall design tips make sure the email has the same look and feel as your website because that's where you're trying to get people to go so you want their website to feel familiar you make it feel familiar by making the email look like the website your brand should be recognisable even when the header is hidden. So make sure the design and the style looks like it came from you. Having some themes are okay, but make sure you keep them to a minimum and always put the brand first. So don't go, you know, if, you're, if your colour palette is always very muted, don't suddenly go bright pink. Uh, consider an inverted pyramid layout above the fold to draw the eye down to the rest of the content. So essentially, the first screen of your email that someone sees, make it look like an arrow pointing down. Cunning, eh? Avoid lengthy emails. Seven short messages maximum or five big ones is as far as you want to go. Use numbers to drive eyeballs through the email. So if it's your top five products, number the products one to five and you'll find more people consume that content and click on through. Don't forget the social proof, strangely enough. Uh, have a good balance of text and images. You need to have both if you want to get past the spam filters and get good deliverability and get people clicking. 
Make sure when you're putting copy into your email that they're short sentences with lots of keywords in them, i.e. make it very scannable, easy for someone to quickly scan through and see the key information. Do have social media icons in the email. Put them either at the very top or at the very bottom and always put them in the same place. Lastly, she had some tips on call to actions. So make sure that above the fold you have a clear call to action weirdly enough, um, have lots of call to actions in your email, plenty of places for people to click and reasons to click, but be careful of overload. Think about someone reading it on a mobile who has to try and get their finger onto the right link. If that's a struggle, then you've put too many calls to actions in there. Your calls to action should always be the same colour, font, shape, so you're training the customer to find them. I would use the same style button that you use on your website, strangely enough. Okay, that was the email advice. Let's now go into the paper-based mail advice, the direct mail advice, because it wouldn't be a DCA event without some content about direct mail. Here we go. The impact of direct mail appears to be increasing. So we had some stats shared about the percentage of UK consumers who bought or ordered something as a result of direct mail. So there was a survey of customers where they asked, have you bought or ordered something as a result of receiving something in the post? 36% in 2007 said yes. In 2016, it was only 27%. So that's a nine percentage point increase. That's huge. So consumers are reacting more to direct mail when it comes to deciding to purchase. And what they respond to in terms of that direct mail um, shifts. So the numbers I'm about to share with you are the percentage of consumers who admitted to reacting to one of these types of direct mail. So 48% of consumers had said they reacted to, to receiving some vouchers through the post. 27% had reacted to a local offer, think your local takeaway, um, etc. And 40% had reacted to something which came in a delivery of a product. So think parcel bounce backs. The catalogue is also very much evolving. Some really interesting content on this because the catalogue is now increasingly being seen as a brand experience piece, a shop window which provides the consumer with much needed me time in many cases. And it drives purchases into all channels because consumers don't see them as an advert. They see them as a quality piece of communication. 97% of the people surveyed claim to have taken action after receiving a catalogue. That's 79%. Then we had um, Miranda Christie from Oka Direct explaining a little bit about how their catalogues have evolved in recent years. They produce a number of different types of catalogue now. They used to only do the one sort. So they produce uh, once per season a big lookbook to highlight the key trends, the key looks of that season. Sorry, for those of you who don't know, Oka Direct do furniture and interiors. They also produce each season a big directory of all the products, so kind of like the, the how to buy from them. And then they produce every four to six weeks a smaller book, say 36 to 48 pages. It's not that small, um, but a smaller book every four to six weeks that just picks and edits certain styles, certain collections, certain product types. Within these books, there's now much, much, much more editorial co content. So collections are being edited to help the consumer choose and content is also being set alongside the edit to educate. For example, articles about product types or areas of the home and guest content from, for example, Country Life's interiors editor. 
This content doesn't necessarily impact the specific product, but it does have a huge halo effect and drives a lot of in-store engagement, leading them to now do events focused on the same content areas as the current book, where you are actually getting to meet the person who wrote the content and help and listen to them take you through how to style that part of the home or buy the right type of that product type. So really interesting what's happening in the catalogue space. Huge, huge things you can do if you've got the budget to spend on creating those catalogue pieces, those big book pieces and getting it right for your customer. Still in the direct mail arena, Daniel Dunn of Paper Planes did a great session on how programmatic DM integrated into an existing abandoned baskets campaign caused a massive uplift in sales. I'm not going to run through that here because Daniel did cover it for the e-commerce master plan virtual summit. And you can watch that one right now. You can check that video out completely for free at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash summit along with 26 other brilliant sessions which are currently being rated by uh, by attendees at 4.8 out of 5 massive star rating there so that's ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash summit if you want to go and register or go and check out daniel's video Okay, and then the last DM piece I've got for you is um, Andrew Curran of Retain.me did a quick session on how the personalised order confirmations, so think about the dispatch note you put in your box, uh, your parcel box, but these are somewhat more personalised, more interesting, featuring product. So his company are enabling those to be created for businesses and they're having a hugely positive impact on repeat purchase and sales. You're going to have to check out his site to understand more about that one because I was chairing that session and um, I didn't get a chance to take any notes at all. So, uh, But I can tell you it was very, very good, very, very interesting. Lots of inspiration there for improving those order confirmations in your parcels. So that was uh, retain.me if you want to go and check that one out. Well, there you go. That's my update from the DCA conference, Autumn Conference. You can find the script of this show and all the links at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash 127-5. If you want to get into stuck, stuck into some more conference style content in the meantime, then my e-commerce master plan virtual summit remains open to registrations. It's free and you'll have access until at least September 2018. That's at com forward slash summit. Uh, that's it for takeaways episodes for the rest of the year, but we've got plenty of interviews coming up, some great interviews coming up too, including next week's interview with PJ Jonas of Goat Milk Stuff, sharing her genius quarterly planning advice. The Get More Customers Club members love this, and I suspect you will too, but you're going to have to listen to hear exactly what it is. Have a great week, all of you, and keep optimising. Thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com.